Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. And while you're doing that, I want to give a shout out to a couple special guests this morning. We have visiting with us my mother and my aunt who came uh, from Modesto this morning to join us. Ostensibly, they came to hear me preach, but I really think they came to get out of the heat. And little did they know our air conditioner wasn't fixed yet. This is the first time my mom has heard me preach uh, in person. My brother is a pastor in Texas, and uh, she's heard him preach uh, many times. But this is her first time here, and I've always known she liked him better. But (laughs) here we are. Two weeks ago, we looked at the strong bonds of Christ's church. And last week, we took a little side trip out to look at, talk about citizenship on Independence Day. But we're back this week to talk about the church. We talk about the things that unified the first church, the things that unify us today. And are we getting, are we getting feedback? Hey, we're going to take a time out here because I've got to put a little, little thing on the end of this. What if I turn this all the way off? How's that? Better. We okay? I think it was the fan. Hey, last week we took a, a side road to Independence Day and now we're talking about the church again. Each of us who are members of Grace Bible Church like those in the first church, is chosen of God, is called by Christ, drawn by the gospel, given the Holy Spirit by whom we are sealed, and publicly declared our union with him through obedience and baptism. And recall from Acts 2 the priorities of the first church in Jerusalem. We saw this in Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And while we considered all these things, I said I would go into more depth about two of them, about baptism and about the breaking of bread. Well, today I want to look at the breaking of bread. Baptism and the breaking of bread, or what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, are considered the two ordinances of the Christian church. This is because they are commanded by Christ, or they're ordered. It comes from the Latin word order. The Roman Catholic Church calls them sacraments, of which there are seven. And in addition to baptism and communion, which they call the Eucharist, there are confirmation, penance, ordination, marriage, and last rites. Now, they call these sacraments because they impart grace. And what this means is by taking communion or getting baptized or getting married, you're meriting grace. What's interesting is that these sacraments impart grace whether or not there is subjective faith on the part of the recipient. It means by merely taking them, you're saved. You're meriting grace. It means that one can earn his salvation And this is not what the Bible teaches. Now, I know some of you have come from 
the Roman Catholic Church, and I'm not here to put anyone down or disparage another religion. But I would be remiss in my responsibilities as your pastor if I did not tell you, and now please listen carefully, that if your salvation is based upon having been baptized as an infant, or having taken communion, or having gone through confirmation, or any other of the Roman Catholic sacraments, and not upon faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you are not saved. Hear me again on this. If your salvation is based upon your having been baptized as an infant, or is based upon having taken communion, or is based upon having gone through confirmation, or any other of the Roman Catholic Church sacraments, and it is not based upon faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you are not saved. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you walk away from nothing else from this sermon, walk away with this. Salvation comes only from faith in the finished work of Christ alone. Acts 4.12 tells us there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you're not sure about where you stand, I urge you to come talk to Pastor Steve or Pastor Ron or talk to me. Ordinances do not impart grace. But we observe them because Christ ordered us to. We often refer to the Lord's Supper as communion. We talk about having communion on Sunday and preparing for communion. But this morning I want you to see that it is more than just communing with Christ and with each other. There is much more to the breaking of bread than communion. And that's why it's referred to as the Lord's Supper. Now I'm going to try and reorient my phrasing not only today, but day to day, to consider it the Lord's Supper rather than calling it communion, to reflect the larger significance of the ordinance. And it's much like moving from a board mentality, and we no longer call it the board of elders, but we call it the elder council, which well, is more reflective of its true nature. So I'm going to refer to it as the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to try from now on not to say that we're having communion but rather we are observing or we are celebrating the Lord's Supper. And I hope today you'll see the significance of this. One of the most off-sided passages regarding the Lord's Supper is found in 1 Corinthians 11. And before we look at the text, let's consider a couple of things about the church at, at Corinth. Corinth was a major cosmopolitan city and it had international significance. It was a crossroads of trade and, and commerce. And it had hundreds of thousands of residents. It boasted some very wealthy individuals and some very poor people. Its culture was wicked, idolatrous, sexually immoral. It had a reputation for this. The church in Corinth itself was founded by Paul during his second missionary journey sometime in the 8050s. But the church did not take long to succumb to the culture around it. In a short period of time, it became a church of discord and disunity. So much so that Paul received both a letter from church members and a delegation from church members who came and gave an oral report asking for him to intervene in what was going on at Corinth. And that's the letter we see in 1 Corinthians. It's his response. 
First Corinthians is written in about the first part of A.D. 55. This means that it's been just a little more than 20 years since the first church in Jerusalem came into being at Pentecost. In those 20 years, Christians have gone from being a unified body in Jerusalem who, according to Acts 2.44, were together and had all things in common to a church marked by quarreling, marked by tolerance of sexual immorality, marked by lawsuits between church members. They even had disorganized and confusing worship services. And in the midst of his rebuke and exhortation, Paul addresses their practice of observing the Lord's Supper. Now, chapter 11 starts with a commendation. Paul says in verse 2, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But he quickly turns to their problems. In verse 3, right away he says, But I want you to understand. Now here goes that word but again. We know that but can negate whatever comes before it. He's a nice guy, but he's always looking out for number one. She's a sweet girl, but boy, does she gossip. They follow Christ, but they don't do everything he commands. Paul's commendation doesn't last for long. He addresses the decorum in their worship service, declaring in verse 16 that those who would want to differ were contentious and would not find support from either the other apostles or from the other churches. Then he comes down to how they observe the Lord's Supper. And this is in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen through 22. Follow along as I, as I read this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, this takes us to our first point, which I call the concern. Paul is expressing a concern. He starts off in verse 17, I do not commend you. No good news. No buts. I do not commend you. There is nothing good here for them to hang their hats on. Notice that their coming together is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul points out that even at the Lord's Supper, there is divisiveness. 
Now, some division can be helpful because, as Paul notes, it demonstrates who is really saved and who is not, or who is being obedient to Christ and who is not. But this division is fractious. It is not building up the body of Christ, but it is tearing it down. And in verse 20, Paul calls them out. He says plainly, when you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. The Corinthian church had combined a a love feast where the congregation shared a meal together with the Lord's Supper. You recall that the first century church, they ate together. They went to each other's homes and they ate together. In Corinth, they had their love feast. They all came together. Um, Think of it as the modern day potluck. They all come together and they eat, but they celebrate the Lord's Supper at the same time. Paul tells them they have perverted their assembly. They are not rightly remembering the Lord in their practice. He points out that they don't eat together. Some go ahead and eat their fill while nothing is left for others. Some even went so far as to get drunk. This meal was to be taken in unity and in joy. In Acts 2.46, we read that the first church received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's hard to do that when others in front of you take all the food and leave little behind. Now, we've seen this happen at parties and at gatherings. Some people, not, not anyone here, but some people fill up their plates to overflowing while others behind get barely a spoonful. How does such behavior demonstrate the love of Christ and the unity of the brethren? And this is what Paul is calling out. Such behavior is not honoring to the Lord, especially when joined with observance of the Lord's Supper. And Paul is not gentle about this. Listen again to what he says in verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. His concern for the Corinthian practice of the Lord's Supper has made things worse for them as a church, not better. So to rectify that, Paul gives the command that came directly from Christ. And this is our second point. We find it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. We had the concern. Now he gives the command. The concern and now the command. And listen to what he says. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, the institution of the Lord's Supper is recorded in the Gospels which attribute the command directly to Jesus. And we find this in Matthew 26, 26 through 29, and Mark 14, 22 through 25. 
and Luke 22, 14 through 20. They all give an account of the Last Supper. Now, Paul is the author of 1 Corinthians. And while 1 Corinthians is not one of the Gospels, his words nonetheless reflect a direct quote from Christ. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. This is a direct revelation. Jesus spoke directly to Paul. And this is a perpetual command. It's not a one-time thing. It's a perpetual command given to the church. And the Lord's Supper is prefigured in Scripture. On the night of the Lord's Supper, Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And you recall that the Passover was instituted while Israel was in captivity in Egypt. We find this in Exodus 12. We're told it was to be an annual memorial observance. Now, on the night of the Passover, God brought judgment on the people of Egypt, but passed over those who were covered by the blood of an innocent lamb. This lamb foreshadowed Christ, who would come centuries later to be God's final means of atonement and redemption. Now, rather than continuing to observe the Passover and remembrance of that night in Egypt, Jesus was commanding his disciples to eat the meal in remembrance of him, no longer celebrating that lamb, but celebrating the lamb of God, a new remembrance, a new memorial. And like the Passover, the Lord's Supper is to be taken regularly. Now, Scripture does not give a command as to how often the Lord's Supper is to be taken. It is silent on that matter. Some churches celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. Some, like Grace Bible Church, observe it monthly. Some churches take the Lord's Supper as we do during a Sunday morning worship service, while others have a special service or celebrate it on a Sunday evening. And some do both. Sunday morning, Sunday evening. I've attended churches where we've done each of these. And I can't tell you why we observe the Lord's Supper as we do here at Grace Bible Church. Why weekly, why during the... I mean, why monthly and why during the, the Sunday morning service? And I think this is a matter for which preference and tradition are allowed. So we don't look to others who celebrate it weekly or who celebrate it only on Sunday evenings as anything than recognizing their preference and their tradition for the congregation. What is more important is that the ordinance is observed as an entire assembly, as the first church did in Acts 2. The observance of the Lord's Supper is one of the strong bonds of Christ's church. And to understand why, we need to look at its significance. We need to look at beyond mere ritual. So the Lord's Supper is first and foremost a memorial rite of Christ and his redemptive death. Even as the Passover is a remembrance of God's redemption of his people from the bondage of Egypt, we are freed from the bondage of sin. And the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of God's grace. Its foremost significance lies in the spiritual nourishment that believers receive when they partake of the bread and the cup. The spiritual nourishment. It is not about getting fed. And the Lord's Supper is 
commonly lies in the um, viewed as a memorial or commemoration of Christ's death. Jesus told of his coming death and that night with his disciples. His command was to take the bread and the cup in remembrance of me. He's already predicting his death. Do this in remembrance of me. We don't tell people to remember us unless we know we're going somewhere. Jesus was foretelling his crucifixion. In verse 26, Paul tells us that Christ's death is proclaimed when Christians partake of the Lord's Supper. And for this reason, participation or celebrating the Lord's Supper is a solemn occasion. We must show an understanding, an appreciation, and a gratitude for the Savior's giving of his life for the sins of men. And it's a time of remembrance and reflection of the salvation that was purchased at so great a cost. And yet the Lord's Supper is more than just a remembrance or a memorial. It's a symbol of the believer's union with Christ. See, we remember not only his death, but also celebrate his resurrection and his presence at the right hand of the throne of majesty where he intercedes on our behalf. It is also a celebration of his presence. Jesus said in Matthew 28, 28, I am with you always to the end of the age. But this is a spiritual presence. Now the Roman Catholic Church holds to the doctrine of transubstantiation, wherein the bread and the cup are actually physically transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And what they say is when you eat the bread, you are eating the actual body of Christ. When you drink the cup, you're actually drinking the blood of Christ. They fail to see the symbolic significance of the bread and the cup as Jesus was talking that night. And what they declare is that every time one partakes, Christ is being crucified again. But Hebrews 9, 25 and 28 and Hebrews 10, 10 tell us that unlike earthly priests, Jesus does not have to repeat his sacrifice. It was once for all. It doesn't need to be repeated. Take a look at this cross behind me. Jesus is not on that cross. He's not still being crucified for our sins. He paid the penalty in full. He died, he was buried, and he rose again. When you look at the cross, take a good look. He's not there. He is at the right hand of the throne of majesty interceding for us. But there's more. Observing the Lord's Supper is also a time of anticipation. Look again at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. He is coming again. And we proclaim it until that day. So observing the Lord's Supper is a source of hope. And a source of joy. It's a reminder that Christ will return for his bride. And in that regard, 
The Lord's Supper can also be seen to prefigure the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will all celebrate with the Lord himself as described in Revelation 19.9. When you have something to celebrate, you don't celebrate alone. When Jesus told the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15.3-7 and the lost coin, Luke 15.8-10, He said that those who found the lost sheep and the lost coin called others to rejoice with them. We don't celebrate the Lord's Supper alone. It's a time of fellowship with God and communion with other believers. Our union with Christ is reflected in this time with the body of Christ. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10, 17, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Believers are joined in a way that non-believers cannot understand. We are all the same. In this time of division and discord in the country, as I preached a couple weeks ago, we are all the same. We are forgiven sinners coming together. We bring nothing except our sin to the cross. No one here is a greater sinner than another. We are all equal before God. We are all justified, declared righteous by Christ's acts. It is not our own doing. And we experience true equality when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Corinthians didn't get this. They had their wealthy people and their poor people and their divisions. And this is what Paul is writing against. Now, I know that there are some that when they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and I've seen this in some other churches where they break off into little groups, whether a community group celebrates over here or a family celebrates together, and they ask you to come forward and dip the bread in the cup and, and, uh, and celebrate the communion. And I, first, I thought that was a, a pretty, pretty close way of doing things. But the reality is, even that, I think, creates factions, We don't celebrate individually or in our little cliques or our little groups. We don't celebrate in our little families because we are all the body of Christ together. And so we celebrate communion. We celebrate the Lord's Supper together, not in groups, not separately, not individually. Taking the Lord's Supper is also a blessing. Look at what Jesus said in verses 24 and 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus said, The bread is the body which is for us. Jesus took on human form for us. He went to the cross for us. He died for us. And he said in John 15, 13 through 14, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. Jesus said that the cup is the new covenant of his blood. 
He's referring to the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. The new covenant provides for forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But you don't receive this by partaking of the Lord's Supper. Rather, you celebrate this blessing through the Lord's Supper. And when rightly celebrated, the Lord's Supper is a strong bond for the church. As I said before, sadly, the Corinthians forgot this. So Paul cautioned them about celebrating in an unworthy manner. And this leads to our third point, the caution. We have the concern, the command, and now the caution. Look with me at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 32. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Paul is referring back to their sinful attitudes and the way they've been treating each other in the church. How can one approach the Lord's Supper while harboring sinful thoughts, conflicts, lack of concern, and care for one another? Likewise, how can one approach the Lord's Supper while harboring any sin in knowing disobedience to the very Lord he is about to commemorate and proclaim? To approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner means that one is guilty of the body and the blood. So one is therefore guilty as it refers to the body of the church or the body of Christ himself, which is represented by the blood and the blood of Christ, which is it? Well, I think actually it's both. Guilty concerning the body refers on the one hand to sins against fellow believers, the body for which Christ is the head. Jesus said that to be guilty of sinning against his body is to be guilty of sinning against him himself. We see this in Matthew 25. But guilty also concerning the body and blood of the Lord also refers to dishonoring him and taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It's as if we're trampling on the cross of Christ and the sacrifice that he paid. Much as if we dishonor our country by trampling on its flag or its constitution, knowing the price our forefathers paid and the people have paid down through the years. Paul tells us that we are to examine ourselves, to see how our behavior matches with what God commands, to determine whether or not we are guilty against the body and the blood. And if we are guilty, we are to address it immediately. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Before you worship the Lord, make sure that your heart and your attitude are right. Confess your sin before God. Confess sin to those against whom you have sinned and ask forgiveness and give forgiveness. 
See, refusal to forgive a sin is every bit a sin as that which was done to offend a person. Jesus said, forgive as you have been forgiven. If we eat or drink without examining ourselves, we eat and we drink judgment. Now, Paul is not talking about eternal condemnation because we're saved, but rather talking about temporal judgment. Hebrews 12, 6 tells us, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And Paul tells us this is why some of the Corinthians are weak and some are ill and others have died. But it doesn't have to be that way. If we honestly examine ourselves and turn from sin, then we will not be judged. God's desire is for us to turn from our sinful ways. Hebrews 12, 10 and 11 says, He disciplines us for good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul says that when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, that we may not be condemned along with the world. God's discipline keeps us from falling from salvation even to the point where he might call a believer home rather than allowing him to continue in serious, unrepentant sin. Brothers and sisters, when we take the Lord's Supper, let us each examine our hearts towards God and toward one another. Let us not wait another moment to repent, to seek forgiveness, and to forgive. Paul then turns to his conclusion, which leads to our fourth point, the comment. We have the concern, the command, the caution, and now the comment. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 33 and 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Paul turns back to the occasion for the love feast, in which the Corinthians came together purportedly to share a meal and to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He told them that if they were coming only to eat, then eat at home first. A practical way to avoid coming together merely to satisfy hunger, often at another's expense. And in this manner, they would come with a sinful attitude to bring judgment upon themselves because they came to eat and to take care of themselves first. We have some concluding thoughts. At the time of the Reformation, there was a person named John Rogers. John Rogers was martyred because he held to what we preach about the Lord's Supper. He denied the doctrine of transubstantiation. That was why he was sent to be burnt at the stake. We think this is a little doctrine, but it's a major doctrine. They killed Christians over this. And he stood firm for the Lord and what real teaching was. See, celebration of the Lord's Supper is more than just communion. When we come together, we remember when we come together, we proclaim. When we come together, we anticipate. When we come together, we celebrate. 
And when we come together, we come as one in Christ, as Christ's body. See, the Lord's Supper is a strong bond for Christ's church. And to experience that bond, you must participate. And that means to be present, to celebrate as an assembly. There is no gathering if you celebrate alone. And the observance of the Lord's Supper is an ordinance, a command from Christ. So for a believer to not participate is to be disobedient. All too often, I think we, we treat this as a ritual and we, we don't look to the importance and significance of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. To participate, you must be saved. The Lord's Supper is not for non-believers. How can you commemorate and proclaim that which you don't believe? And if not participating in the Lord's Supper is disobedience for the believer, for the unbeliever, participating is meaningless. If we look upon the Lord's Supper as nothing but another church ritual, then we are guilty of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Hear me again on this. If we look upon the Lord's Supper as nothing but another church ritual, then we are guilty of eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. But if we rightly celebrate it, we have union with Christ and with one another. And we have a strong bond in Christ's church. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is clear. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Father, we remember. Father, we proclaim. Father, we do it with joy and hope and anticipation. Father, it is a memorial, but a commemoration and a, and a communion, a time where we are joined together as your body to praise you, to worship you to remember and proclaim Christ. Father, we pray that you bless us as we go into the time of the Lord's Supper. Father, I pray for everyone here that we not look upon this as just something to do, merely eating a piece of bread and drinking some juice. But Father, that we judge ourselves and we judge ourselves rightly. Father, let this be a, a worship that is pleasing to you, commanded by you, ordained by Jesus Christ. Let us do it with our whole hearts, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.